So our good Father, you are a holy God, and you say to us now, be holy as I am holy. And you sent your son to clean us up and make us righteous, to save us and to rescue us now, to set us on a course of walking with you in a life that honors you. You've set us apart as your people, God. Thank you for the blood of Christ. Thank you for a God who is holy. We worship you this day, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen, you may be seated. Well, good morning. Welcome to Risen Life. Thank you for making worship a priority. Thank you for setting aside time to worship Christ and to honor him. It is our aim each Sunday to lift him up so that we would see him for who he is, who is more desirable than anything this earth can offer. And that's the point of, of our text this morning. We're in Colossians 3. You can turn there. And I want to thank many of you for serving last night. We had a parking lot jammed with kids and adults and cotton candy and popcorn and bouncy houses. And, like, it was fun, right? And what a great time. And I just thought kids are kind of coming in a little sugar high this morning. Like, it was good, though. And uh, parents, thanks for wrangling them in through that. And, and we put together 400 Christmas boxes for Operation Christmas Child. 400, right? Last night. Isn't that the greatest thing? And thanks to Kristen Beth and her team for that. And uh, there will be a lot of kids that will feel the love of Christ uh, through those boxes. So thank you for all of that work. And so I want to invite you now this morning to turn to uh, Colossians chapter 3. Let's, let's, Let's look seriously at God's word. The Bible says, let's tremble at his word. He speaks, and he has something to say to us this morning. He wants us to hear from him. And this is really a central text. If we had to pick a text that would say what the gospel is about and how it transforms us, these next four weeks, actually, this chapter three is, is the chapter of Colossians that we want to look carefully at. So we're going to slow way down and just take four weeks on this chapter. In fact, uh, the staff memorized this chapter here this last year. So I, I said I was going to pick one of them and have them stand up and say it, but I don't know that that would go well for me this week if I did that. So I think I'll just give them a pass on that. But we'll see in, in chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, that we're to seek the things above, right? That's the first part. And the second thing is to reject or kill the things that's below in our earthly nature. And then finally, point three will be Christ is all we need. So seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on earthly things. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. And you'll notice that um, we are raised with Christ in these verses. That's the past. When you believe in Jesus, you are given a new life. You're raised with Christ. Then it says you're hidden in Christ. That's the present. That Christ walks with you and holds you. You're hidden in him. And then you will appear with him one day in glory. That's the future. And so all the work of our salvation is Christ and what he has done and none of us. In fact, our work, this is what we do have one thing we're supposed to do. Jesus said, here's your work. This is the work you're to do. Believe on me. That's all we're called to do. 
believe and trust and to surrender our lives to him. So if we've been raised in the past, if we've put our faith in him, then we're to seek the things that are above. We're to seek Christ and his fullness. Chapters 1 and chapter 2 have been talking to us about the fullness of Christ and all he is. That he is indestructibly happy and full of joy. He does all that he is pleases. He is God in human flesh at his right hand. God says our pleasures forevermore. We're to seek walking with Jesus and experience that joy. We're to seek his wisdom and his guidance. Isn't it great when you have a great coach in athletics or in speech? Somebody who really knows what they're doing and they teach you and you learn and you become better. Well, Jesus is the ultimate coach. He's, the, he's filled with wisdom in all the things of life. And we're to walk with him and to seek his wisdom. And we're to seek his character and his holiness. He lived a perfect life, tempted at every way imaginable, it says, like every one of us. And stayed true. You know how hard it is to stay true? You know, the longer you're kind of hanging in there, right? Intensity goes up and goes up. And Jesus did that for a whole life and stayed true all the way to the end in obedience to the Father. And so we're to seek his holiness and his character. And at the end of the day, what this verse is telling us is that Jesus is the answer to all our hearts long for. We jam all kinds of cruddy, goofy, sometimes good things in there in place of him. And it doesn't cut it because only Jesus was meant to be there. And so we are to seek him. And it says we're to seek him and he is seated there where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. He has the final place of authority. He is Lord. And this is what it means to be saved is to submit to him as Lord. Say, Jesus, you are Lord and I give my life to you. But Ephesians 2.6 says this remarkable thing that we are co-seated with Christ in the heavenlies. That we are seated with him in this place of authority over the demonic world and over all the temptations so that we can say no to all the sin that comes against us. We have that power because we're co-seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Verse 2 says to set your minds on things that are above. Fix our minds on Christ. Now, this does not mean that we take our minds off of earth, right? I mean, some of us over time and over years have said, no, just only think of heaven. Well, that's not what this is said. You know, I'm an, I, for those of you who know something about Enneagrams, I'm an Enneagram number 7 which means I'm blissfully optimistic about everything almost to a fault, right? And I can kind of overlook the struggles of earth and just be happy, right? I have that skill. But that's not what Jesus is asking me to do. He wants us to live with our feet planted on earth, going through the hardship and the suffering that requires the character to navigate earth wisely. D.L. Moody said it well many, many years ago. He said, some people are so heavenly minded, they're of no earthly good. We don't want to be that, right? But what this does mean that when we are to fix our eyes and our minds to think on the things of heaven, it means to get our direction from heaven on how to live in earth and look at earth through heaven's viewpoint. That's what this text is asking us to do. So what is your guiding principle as you live life on earth? What is your focus in your life? Is it Christ and his mission Jesus said it well, I'm here to do my father's business. Is that, is that what you would say, that we're here to do what God is asking us to do? And, and maybe a good test of it 
right? And all of us struggle, I think, to do this well. But when you are still and you are quiet and there's nothing pressing on you in the moment, right? Don't have a lot of those, many of us in our life. Where does your mind go? What do you think on? What fills up that quiet space quickly? What Paul is saying is let that be Jesus. He says now, verse 3, that your life is hidden with God, in Christ, with God. That when we believe in Jesus, we actually enter into him. We are in Christ. Ninety times in the New Testament. This is one of the most common phrases, what it means to be a Christian. You are in Christ. You've been buried with him in your old life and come back to new life in Christ, to him. And we are hidden with him. And that, that word hidden means to be secure and to be content. You can't lose your salvation. Jesus has got you. <laughs> There's no amount of getting running that you can get away from him. He holds you. And you're hidden with him, which means you're never alone. His fullness goes with you. He is always there, present to bless. His presence, when spoken of in the Bible, is always present to bless. Psalm 139.5 says he goes ahead of us. He comes behind us to protect us. And he lays his hand of blessing on us. So we are Hidden, I love that picture, hidden with Christ in God. It reminds me of playing hide-and-seek as a child. Children, any of you like the game of hide-and-seek? Anybody played hide-and-seek and like hide-and-seek? Isn't that a great game? Does it, anybody have like their favorite hiding place? Or maybe you're planning next time you play hide-and-seek, you know where you're going where nobody will find you. Right? That's the goal of hide-and-seek, Right? I remember playing hide-and-seek as a kid in my yard. We had this beautiful yard in Washington and some big trees and kind of a forest area and some cool gardens and things. It was a great hide-and-seek yard. And, and I thought, I know where I'm going to go next time I play. I'm going to go to this top of this big evergreen tree, like 50 feet tall. And I did. I, I went and hid up there. I climbed up. Like I, I didn't know if I had the time, you know, because they only count to 10 or 20 or whatever. you got to hide fast, right? And i got to get up to the top of this tree. But I got up there, and I, I made it. And I thought to myself, nobody will ever find me here. I thought, yeah, nobody's ever going to find me here, right? And then I thought, nobody's ever going to find me here, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, see that? But, but you know, I wasn't alone, was I? Children, I wasn't alone. Who was with me? God was with me, right? I wasn't alone. Even in those dark places where we're by ourselves, maybe in our bed at night, and God is with us. That's what it's saying. We're hidden with Christ. Right? In the moment of that tough test or the moment of that hard conversation or even the relaxing moment at the beach or the mountains, we are with Christ. He's always with us. And then it says, when Christ appears, verse 4, you will also appear with him and glory. That means it's really good to walk with Jesus, but the best is yet to come. Right? Life is, is difficult and painful on earth at times. Disappointing. And in fact, um, I think we feel as humans, right, this constant ache in our souls, don't we? For something better. 
We just want it to be better. Even on the good days, my soul kind of aches. Like, there's got to be something just a little better, a little bit more. And you know what that is? That's God placing eternity in your hearts. It is there that cries out for a better place. Let that ache make you long for a better future. Because that's what God has for us. C.S. Lewis said it well, when the things of earth don't satisfy you, know that that indicates that you were made for a better place. Isn't that great? So we are to live as new people, keeping our eyes on Jesus, walking with him, knowing that our hope is in him and our salvation rests in Christ, past, present, and future. Seek the things that are above, people, God's people. Secondly, and this is a little violent, (laughs) verse 5, now it says, put to death. Kill, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexually immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Since we have been raised with Christ, now we are to live a holy life. We are new. Now we're to act like it. This is, this is the Bible's message. God makes us new. Now act like it. God makes you holy Now live it. We see this over and over and again as we look at the the New Testament. But to kill or to crucify the earthly, the sinful, the fleshly stuff in us. You know, I I think we, this has been written this way many times by Christian authors over the years. We have this kind of notion that we're like a house, right? And and God's going to come in and kind of neaten things up for us, right? Move the furniture a bit, put in some new cabinets, right? Paint the walls, put in some new carpet. Just kind of refresh us. That's what we kind of (laughs) think. And there's a wrecking ball outside by God to just wipe the whole thing out. Because there's nothing good in our flesh. Nothing. Don't try to educate it. (laughs) It won't be educated. It's untamable. It's evil. God has to destroy it and wipe it out, right? It's kind of like the Sugar House fire, that tragic fire this past week. You know, that building is burned. It just needs to just be thrown down to the ground. It's uninhabitable. And that's what God says he's got to do with us. He has to wipe it out. And in our text this morning, there's a couple of categories of sins that are common to us. In fact, I think this little chapter hits kind of the biggest things that go after us. One is our sexuality. Our sexual immorality, it's called impurity, passion, evil desire. And the other one is coveting, material possessions and wanting more of them. These are the things that come after us, right? And like most sins, I think, these are good things, right? Possessions are good things, they're a blessing. Our sexuality is a good gift from God. But when it gets used for selfish purposes, it causes great harm, The word for sexual immorality there is the word pornea. That'll sound familiar to you. Avoid that, right? Impurity and passion, desires to express ourselves sexually in ways that are not in line with God. And covetousness, just constantly looking around, right? People's houses and cars and vacations and things and go, I kind of wish I was them or had their things. I think what's important here to see is that these sins that are being called out here are deeply 
rooted in our passions and in our desires. There's a reason we fall prey to them. Money and sex are associated with deep desire. Uh, in Sunday school class back here this morning, we were, we were talking about Augustine and, uh, and desires. And uh, St. Augustine famously said, Lord, give me chastity, but not just yet. <laughs> right? Give me, give me control of my finances and let me be on a budget, but not just yet. Right? Give me control of my diet and the way I eat. But just tonight, let me like, right, indulge. Right? That, isn't that the way we are? We, we have this deep wrestling in our souls. We can't educate ourselves out of this. Teaching won't overcome it because it's rooted in our desires, in our passions. I often say, if I could just flip a switch and take that temptation away, I would flip it in one half second. God doesn't give that to me. It's not just a decision. I've got a passion and a desire in me by the flesh that wants to take me a different way. And that's why God says, you got to kill it. <laughs> you got to root it out. Because it will get you. So what do we do? See? And this is where this text helps us. This is how all these verses tie together. The way that you kill the passions of the flesh is by putting your eyes on Jesus. Right? Seek the things that are above. Set your minds on things that are above. Christ is better and more satisfying than that sin. Walking with Jesus is a better path. And so what you have here is this competition of desire and pleasure. What delivers and what doesn't? And the Bible says, by putting your eyes on Jesus, kill the things of the flesh. That's the Bible's answer. Right? Galatians 5 says it really well, verses 16 and 17. It says, but I say to you, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. These oppose each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. You ever felt that? Right? Sometimes the desires for the world get up higher than the desires of God, and we give in. And so the key to being filled with the Spirit is have the desires of the Spirit be stronger than the desires of the flesh. So what is the desire of the Spirit? What does the Spirit do with us? I mean, what's the whole purpose of the Spirit as you read through the New Testament? What does he do? He points us to Jesus. He magnifies Christ. He glorifies Jesus as more pleasurable, more desirable, and better for us than all the things of this world. And so we say, no, I'm not going to do that because following Jesus is better. And what I do to kind of magnify this thought in my mind, that when I resist temptation, sometimes I don't. And then I feel miserable. But when I do resist, I celebrate. I rejoice. I say, God, thank you. Right? It lights up my soul so that I'm magnifying the joy of following Jesus and not the ways of my flesh. Right? You'll feel sick enough when you do sinful things, right? But let's not forget to celebrate when we choose Jesus above the flesh. The one you desire more wins. Our little grandson, Luke, in California, um, when we were there here this last summer, we gave him his first donut. 
got a big smile, you know. And uh, it's funny how those things kind of plant in your mind, right, when something's really pleasurable. And so our kids were telling us, you know, a couple months ago they were going through, a month ago, so they were going through a book and they came across a donut in the story. And he goes, (laughs) he doesn't say many words yet. (laughs) That's more, that's right, more, more, right? What is it in your life that when you see it as an opportunity, you go, right? Jesus, right? There it is, Jesus. That's the answer. So this relationship to Jesus, it's interesting, uh, is likened to a relationship in marriage, right? I mean, Jesus calls himself the great bridegroom, and we are his bride. And it's one of great love and great passion when we know him personally. But he tells us in this text that when we give in to these sins, sexual morality, covetousness, it is idolatry. Isn't that interesting? Covetousness, which is idolatry. It's replacing Jesus with something else. This more is given to something other than Jesus. And then the Bible takes it a step deeper. Right? This is hard language now, just, but, but, but this is God speaking to us, that idolatry is spiritual adultery. It's making a love outside of your marriage covenant with Jesus. See? And what does adultery bring? Some of you have gone through the tragedy of adultery, right? What does adultery bring to a relationship? brings wrath, does it not? And anger and fury. And that's why in verse 6 it says, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Right? I mean, sometimes we think of God as kind of this fussy God who's just kind of hard on sin, you know, unreasonably angry, and he's out to get us. But no. (laughs) When we chase other bridegrooms as the bride he is justly and righteously angry it makes him angry it's an angry thing right and how does God express his anger think about this it's very similar to what a spouse does in expressing their anger when adultery is committed on them what do they do they go go have your way just go ahead go get out of my life right And we see Romans 1, when we exchange God and put something in that place, it says his wrath comes, and what does he do? Go have your way. Just go do your thing. Like if you want to be adulterous with me, go and run. Have your fun and see where that takes you. Right? I mean, that's the reasonable response when we're cheated on. Just go. And that's what God does with us. So just go. Right? Just go. And sometimes God gets accused and asked, well, why all this suffering on earth? Well, this is what it looks like when people have their way. (laughs) That's all it is. It's just God saying, go have your fun. Right? If you don't want me, go do it. 
And we want to turn our eyes to him and blame him when we're the ones that are going 100 miles an hour away from him. So the Bible warns us, right? These are hard verses, right? Anytime you see the wrath of God, it's hard. But, but it's, it's a mercy that God shows us on earth what it looks like when we go our own way. Isn't that a mercy? It's not him being mean or unfair to us. It's, it's him going, look, what this is what this looks like. Repent and turn and come back to me. Don't go your own way. And he shows us this on earth now so that we repent and turn to him and trust in him and walk in his way now and don't have the ultimate turning our back on him, which is hell, separation from him for all eternity because we've gone our own way our whole life through. So turn to Jesus. He satisfies. Taste and see that the Lord is Good, and see that idols ultimately shame us. They make us look really dumb because they don't satisfy. We give our hearts to things of various places, put those places of God, and it's just like food poisoning. It tastes good when it's going down, and then it just makes you sick. It doesn't work. It shames us. It makes us look really dumb, and this is why I think we see now in verse 8, it says, but now you must put these all away. Anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk from your mouth. That's what it looks like when you're a person that has chased false gods. It leaves you empty and you're angry, right? People that have given themselves to all kinds of crazy addictions, and we all have our moments. But living those things and walking those things are the most angry people I know. It doesn't work. It shames us. It makes us look dumb. Come back, Jesus said. Turn back to me. I've provided a way. Don't end up in that place. And that's why it says here, strip off the old clothes, verse 9, and put on the new, right? Get off that road. It leads to misery and ultimately to hell. And that's why Jesus said, get violent with yourself when you've got your sin. Gouge out your eye and cut off your arm. He's not saying physically do this, but it's a spiritual picture. Like, get violent with yourself because this is the pathway of destruction. Get off it. Right? These are hard words, but we need some of these, don't we? To remind ourselves. But rather put on the new, right? Which is being renewed, verse 10, in knowledge after the image of the creator. This word guides us. It's the menu to how to taste and see that the Lord is good. What a fair warning God has given us to come to him. Well, finally this morning, in verse 11, it says, Christ is all you need. Look at verse 11. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free. But Christ is all and in all. That this gospel of Jesus' forgiveness, and by the way, we've all sinned, right? It says in verse 7, we just all walked on that path. We've all given that a shot. But Jesus invites all people back experience his love and forgiveness and redemption there's always hope we've got a heartbeat that's going on we have the opportunity to turn and choose Jesus as the greater desire of our hearts give ourselves to him instead of the things of the flesh I love this word all but Christ is all he's all we need and he's in all he's in everybody who believes in him 
right? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Christ died for all, 2 Corinthians 5.15. Christ is Lord of all, Romans 10, 11, and 12. All who call on the name of the Lord will be saved, Romans 10, 13. This gospel is for all peoples and all nations. That's why I love singing in Spanish here on Sunday morning as well as English. It's a reminder for us that Jesus loves the nations. He loves all peoples. Christ is for all. And band, you can come on up. <clears throat> all of us are invited, all of us, to come and experience new life and redemption. Look at that. This text is telling us that Jesus is the better lover, not the world, right? God loves us so much that he'd send his son for us. And Jesus is the ultimate bridegroom and we are married to him he is the pursuer of us right we've been reading about Colossians how it is through Jesus that the whole world was created you know why Jesus created the world to put his glory on display so we might be drawn to him this is God romancing us Come be with me. I made the whole world. Don't give yourself to that piddly little crap there that's being tempted with. Look at the world. This is me speaking to you how much I love you. God is the romancer of our souls, and it's passionate, it's emotional, and it's sacrificial all the way to the cross. He invites us and he woos us to walk with him. I was walking along the foot, the uh, Shoreline Trail this last week in the morning, just a little devotional time with God and looking out over his creation and this great city that he's let us live in and, and just hear his voice, how much he loves us, that he could make these mountains and these valleys and trees and grass to just enjoy him. He's better than anything else in the whole world. And to get to know him and to love him and to be loved by him. God has made you for himself to know his love and his grace and to live as his special creation. And Jesus said this. This is an interesting phrase. He says, my food, Jesus said, is to do the will of him who sent me. It's like he uses all these pa this passionate language in the scripture. I love this about God. That to walk with him and to obey him is like food for our souls. Jesus fills our hunger and our thirst. And a life surrendered to him is like feeding our soul. And then he says, we live here and we eat by walking with him. But it's only an appetizer for what is to come. <laughs> there is the marriage supper of the lamb that awaits those who will walk with Jesus on this earth. Food now. And the celebration supper in the days ahead. And to look ahead to that. That's the picture. As we come to the holiday season, you know, it's a great season, isn't it? And we sit around tables and feast. And what a great thing. What a great gift that God has given, right? Under his love and his care and submission to him, food is the greatest gift. You know, and I, it reminded me back in my childhood days. And my parents would have the holidays and have the family over. And um, they would serve us whether it was prime rib or turkey, you know, it varied year by year. <clears throat> and I love those things. But what I liked best, this may sound a little crazy to you, 
is my mother made the world's best lemon meringue pie. And she like doubled and tripled the meringue. So it was like pie was that thing and the meringue was up to the sky, you know. And, and, and I just was, I mean, I was getting through the turkey. Love the turkey, but could hardly wait for the dessert as a kid, right? And then they would say the key words. Dinner's almost over. Keep your fork. <laughs> right? Keep your fork. Because that meant the best was yet to come. And Jesus is saying to us, right, walk with me now. That's food for your soul. But keep your fork. The best is to come.